Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia, located in Vancouver on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. In the view of Anthony Hodgson, fragmentation of local and global societies is escalating, and this is aggravating vicious cycles. To heal the rifts, Hodgson believes we need to reintroduce the human element into our understandings, whether the context is civic or scientific, and strengthen truth-seeking in decision-making, and that the application of appropriate concepts and methods will enable a switch from reaction to anticipation, even in the face of discontinuous change and high uncertainty. The intended outcome is the privileging of the positive human skills for collaborative navigation through uncertainty over the disjointed rationality of mechanism and artificial intelligence, which increasingly alienates us. In Systems Thinking for a Turbulent World, a search for new perspectives out from Rutledge in 2020, Hodgson's readers are introduced to concepts new to systems thinking that integrate systems thinking and futures thinking. Guiding readers through the unfolding of the ideas and practices with a narrative based on the metaphor of search portrayed in the tradition of ox herding, found in traditional Far Eastern consciousness practice, the concept of anticipatory present moment serves as a basis for learning the cognitive skills that better enable navigation through turbulent times. In his conversation with guest interviewer Kevin Lindsay, Hodgson pulls together many of the threads with which longtime listeners of this podcast will be familiar and builds upon the work of Robert Rosen, a currently somewhat neglected pioneer of the systems field whose ideas about anticipatory systems has much to offer us in our current turbulent times. Our guest interviewer, Kevin Lindsay, is a 25-year veteran of the software industry, currently with Adobe, who recently began graduate work in transformative leadership at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where he encountered Dr. Hodgson and his work firsthand. While it was in this recent coursework that he was formally introduced to systems thinking, Kevin is rapidly becoming a systems enthusiast, recognizing the significant potential for the application of systems thinking in addressing big issues ranging from customer experience to social justice reform and climate action. We look forward to having Kevin join the channel as a full-fledged co-host in the very near future. And just one other quick word about the interview we're about to hear. Um, Due to some technical difficulties um, that impinged upon an already very tight timeline, the interview did not end up being as long as we wanted it to be. And so uh, we felt a bit rushed, especially with a book this rich. So um, we trust that uh, what we have captured here is certainly a very rich conversation. I was uh, fortunate to be a fly on the wall as Kevin conducted the the interview, and I found it uh, deeply engaging and uh, got me very excited about the work that uh, Dr. Hodgins is doing. Um, but we also hope that maybe we can bring him back for a second part on this same book uh, sometime in the near future. Please uh, enjoy the interview, and thanks for listening. Okay, Kevin Lindsay. And Tony Hodgson, Anthony Hodgson, welcome both to New Books uh, in Systems and Cybernetics, special edition where we have our first uh, appearance by a guest host, something I'm hoping we'll do um, 
uh, in the months to come as well. Uh, I'll get us started off right away by just um, starting off with our traditional New Books Network question, and then I'll throw um, the interview primarily over to our guest host, Kevin, and I may chime in once in a while if I think I've got something worthwhile to say, but most likely I'll just let the two of you uh, have, a, have a stimulating conversation and just enjoy it along with the rest of our listeners. But um, Tony, if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your academic background, your trajectory, your intellectual trajectory, and what led you to an engagement with systems? Well, it goes back a long way because I'm uh, quite an old guy now in my early 80s. Um, But in my 20s, I was very curious about um, the unity of science and um, putting things together integrally. And I couldn't find any uh, trace of that at my um, undergraduate studies at um, Imperial College, um, uh, where I graduated in chemistry. And in my research, uh, when I moved to the University of Birmingham, but I managed to track down a very remarkable uh, man called John Bennett. And uh, he'd written a book which was largely about the unity of science um, called The Dramatic Universe, Volume 1. And it didn't give any trace of where he lived, but I hunted him down. And eventually, after about three or four attempts, he granted me an interview at which things sparked, and he invited me to um, to work with him. And shortly thereafter, he had some funding in his research institute, and um, I became a research fellow for um, almost a decade, and worked on various ideas, one of which was the idea of qualitative systems. And in doing that, we were also in touch with the early days of the Society for General Systems Research, von Bertalanffy, um, Kenneth Boulding, and that whole crew um, from the West Coast. And also um, Gordon Pask and others in the cybernetics field in the UK. But we were on a slightly different trajectory. Um, Cut a long story short, I gave up my uh, ordinary academic career at that point. I was in a, a, a private um, a research institute and ended up consulting to um, industry where uh, I ended up um, principally, uh, apart from facilitation, working on strategy and working on futures. For example, I introduced some of my methods to Shell International, um, which they um, wanted to use with their scenario planning methods that they were developing. And um, when I finally um, uh, sort of left that consulting world um, at the age of about 70, I think it was, I had a lot of unfinished business. And um, one of the things that really aggravated me was that I was doing quite a bit of systems thinking in the field of strategy and a lot of thinking in the field of futures and the two just didn't stack up, even though you needed them both for strategy. So um, that's that's a kind of incredibly compressed uh, view. But I came into my sort of latter-day academic work when I met Professor Gerald Midgley, 
who was then director of the Centre for Systems Studies at the University of Hull, um, a leading systems thinker, and uh, did a PhD with him where I tried to resolve my issues. And that led to the book that uh, has um, prompted this conversation. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sorry, I thought I had a little microphone hitch. I'm still getting back in the saddle. I haven't hosted this in a while. I'm still getting back in the saddle with my microphone. <laughs> Apologies. Thank you so much for that. And uh, yeah, with uh, it must be a compressed story because of the incredible lineage of uh, your connection to systems, as you've just described, your, your interactions with many of the luminaries from both the group that calls themselves systems and the group that calls themselves cybernetics and obviously uh, uh, all the way up to your engagement with Gerald Midgley and, and beyond. So um, thank you for setting the stage for us that way. I will now turn it over to Kevin um, and uh, we'll talk about this, uh, this fantastic book of yours. Go ahead. Great. Kevin. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. And uh, Tony, thanks for that um, background. Very useful uh, for, I think the listeners to hear, you know, where you come from and how you got here. Uh, so Congratulations, by the way, on on the book. Um, so systems thinking for a turbulent world. It's a great place to start the conversation is to talk about turbulence. Um, as we have this conversation, we are several months into the uh, coronavirus pandemic. I don't think we're, you know, we had started to have this experience yet when you began this book. Um, so maybe you weren't quite thinking of, about turbulence in, in this way. But uh, I'm just wondering if you could spend a few minutes on the setup of the book. Um, your thoughts on what you call hyper-turbulence and uh, the fragmentation and pattern thinking and that you describe and the results that come from, from those things. I think the listeners would be really interested to know um, kind of really what compelled you to, to, to write this book and, and why is it really important right now? Okay, well, um, a number of sort of threads came together, but... Um, one of the important ones that when I was in my strategy facilitation mode and doing quite a lot of scenario planning for um, large corporations and a little bit for the um, uh, public sector, it, it became very clear to me that, that the institutional response times were beginning to fall way behind the rate of change. And if um, our responses are out of sync, um, probably growing <clears throat> at an exponential rate, um, we're not only um, subject to turbulence, but we're also creators of turbulence because our actions are generally not corresponding to the way things are. Uh, too little, too late, um, so to speak. Um, and then I came across um, um, Selsky's work on turbulence and then some work that he did with um, another friend of mine now, um, Professor um, Bob Roglu at the University of um, Sabachi in, in um, Istanbul. Uh, and they coined the term hyperturbulence to try and um, capture in a word this sort of running away from us. Now, the other thing that I worked on quite a bit was the idea of how to deal with uncertainty. And of course, that was very prominent in um, scenario planning, where the, the basic technique is to distill 
things down to your primary uncertainties and then play with combinations that indicate what if um, alternatives uh, and then using that as a kind of wind tunnel to test your um, your your strategies or your business plans or whatever and um, of course again the other factor that comes into that is uncertainty implies unknown and if you combine um, accelerating unknowns with accelerating turbulence that's another kind of um, uh, factor in the environment um, but then uh, I suppose we could move on to the idea that how we deal with that if we're stuck in a deterministic paradigm is generally uh, doing something about it out there whereas my earlier interest and training um, uh, at a personal level was in consciousness and the the internal development that um, we need to be able to, as it were, absorb and accommodate more complexity. I suppose I was, um, with hindsight, working with Ashby's law of requisite variety that, that the human individual can't develop the variety to deal with the complexity gap which the um, hyperturbulence induces. And that's further... Um, compounded by um, the fact that this diagnosis I've given you is largely not recognized in conventional cultures and therefore um, uh, we're very much like the um, the story of the blind man and the elephant you know we, we, we don't even know whether it's an elephant because we, we think we've all got the right answer um, and uh, actually the, the the real world is is more complex than that um, so I've been working with clients to develop uh, facilitation methods that acknowledge the unknown and acknowledge that we needed to work differently together. And that led to various methods, uh, some of which are um, hinted at in, 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 in the book, but most, a good number of which have now found their way into our uh, social educational enterprise called H3Uni. Um, as we've sort of <clears throat> taken them out of the um, corporate world and tried to make them available to um, uh, particularly the upcoming generations that need to somehow navigate their way out of our mess. I don't know whether that covers enough, Kevin, yeah. but it's a start. It, 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 it certainly does. I think that gives us a great sort of foundation for how to um, approach the book and, and, and why it's very relevant right now, um, certainly. I want to, you know, we're going to spend some time kind of going through the book. And uh, it's, it was so tempting as I was thinking about this conversation to kind of go through chapter by chapter in a lot of detail. And there are some parts of it I want to go into more deeply than others. But I, I want to first start by hearing from you um, a little bit about your decision to use a very interesting metaphor on which to build your metaphor, I, rather to build your narrative. Um, and, uh, and that is this uh, Far Eastern consciousness practice of Oxfording, this, this, you know, this, this story that, that um, I had not been familiar with before. So you know, I, I kind of went out and, and had to find out what's this all about. Um, but um, I really loved it and, and thought it was a useful way. It was um, you know, as, a, as a reader, 
it gave me that that arc. It gave me that that journey, um, and and allowed me to not just read, um, but kind of go on that that journey. Um, so I'd love to you know get your thoughts on why you chose to use this in your book. Well, the the, the difficulty with your question, Kevin, is that it's a very understandable, rational question. But I can't answer it in those terms. So I think the best thing I can do is just tell you a little story of how it happened. So this goes back some years to when I was working with um, my group uh, 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 on one of the themes we were working on was creativity and creative thinking. And we were also studying, doing comparative study on the way different cultures believe the mind works. And one of the things we came across um, in looking into the um, Buddhist traditions was this um, teaching. And it appealed to us. And I, I did some work on it with colleagues where we, we kind of looked at the Western techniques that had been published on methods of creative thinking, you know, different systems with different steps and the kind of De Bono stuff and the Tony Bazan stuff and wax on the side of the head and all that kind of area. And um, realized that there were certain, you know, similarities because having a systems background, I'm always looking for uh, to use the technical term isomorphism, you know, mm -hmm. similar patterns that keep recurring in different settings. And as a result of that, uh, I just happened to come across a rather nice set of illustrations of the 10 stages of um, ox herding or cow herding. And uh, for I, that work finished, but I left the pictures um, stuck on the, uh, just about in sight on the top right hand corner of my large whiteboard. And um, apart from occasionally looking at it and reflecting, uh, that was it. And then um, when I got the book together, I'd, I'd assembled the various pieces of work that I'd been doing where the order in which they've appeared in my life clearly was, uh, well, it certainly wasn't in, in a coherent um, unfolding. It was very kind of um, parallel excursions. And it, to, thinking about the, the reader or potential reader, I was wondering, well, how, how what's, what's the red thread? What's the golden thread that, that runs through this? I mean, surely there is one or it isn't really a book. And I had to face that question. And I was sitting at my desk where I'm sitting now, um, kind of pondering this and struggling. And I, I just happened to spin my chair around and the, um, this little set of pictures hit my eye and a kind of intuitive voice said, use that. So I thought that's ridiculous. Um, this is this is you know a Routledge systems thinking book um, with a senior editor who is a, a leading professor in the field. You know, 
he's let me get away with a lot so far, but can I take it that far? And then I started mapping the various bits of my um, life's work onto the um, onto the scheme, so to speak, and um, it came alive. And um, so I worked on it some more. And then, um, of course, there are 10 stages of, of ox herding. You've probably come across that if you've scanned it on the web. But the original version from Japan was eight stages. And another area that I've been interested in, which isn't really featured in the book, but is featured in my life, is the, the teachings of, um, of Gurdjieff and the idea of the, the octave, the idea that transformation takes place in eight stages. <clears throat> so I, I felt confident that there was something in this. And um, with a few more editorial passes and a bit of rewriting, um, the story emerged um, that is in the um, in the introduction, really, um, uh, of, of how it unfolds. And um, yeah, and it seems to have. I'm happy to hear from you that it it seems intuitive to catch on with people, and it's very different from um, conventional systems thinking books, and that's deliberate because. Part of the whole theme of the book is, look, if we keep following conventional ways of thinking, we're really stuffed. You know, um, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric about we've got to think differently, but not a lot of contribution to, well, how do we do that? Yeah, I, I, it, it's, I love that story. It's I think it was meant to be. I think those those pictures were speaking to you well before you had that moment and, and you just didn't realize it. Yeah, they just popped up when I needed them, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I guess. And, and so hopefully they're useful for you and others who... Um, yeah, definitely. Well, and I, I'm sure that, that, that people who have not uh, um, read the book yet, we've certainly piqued their curiosity uh, about what this, what this thing is all about and how does it, how does it apply here. And uh, they won't be disappointed when they read the book. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to, to navigate this content. Um, let's a, let's a jump into... Point, Kevin, just quickly, yes. that one of the other things that frustrated me uh, right from my entry into academia was the the very narrow interpretation of what research is and um and the absence of acknowledgement of the creative thinking in that process whereas if you look at the case studies of interesting scientific breakthroughs uh, they're not how they're described in the official books you know no really interesting phd was achieved by the way it was written up and and exactly. so the idea of, of search and research i think need to be uh, brought together but that's yeah. um that's another that's another whole book that isn't written <laughs> there you go that that's your, your next one queued up to be written um so you know when you when you start off the book i mean you have a lot of great content in in the introduction in the, the beginning of the book that you know hopefully no one ever skips over that stuff because there's always there are always gems there um, but in the first chapter, I think it's it's really uh, important how you 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 lay out this problem. You you kind of just alluded to this when you said we'd be stuffed if we just continued this this exist you know way that we're doing things now. You say something in the first chapter that I really resonate with. You say there are many stages between a hunch and a realization, and I think that you know when we think about this, uh, and and just for, for the listeners, the, the the first chapter really maps to seeking the ox. 
um, if you were to you know apply this metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it does indeed lay that kind of um, very important uh, foundation and makes the point that we have to do things differently. And, I, and I'd love you to spend a moment. One of the, my takeaways was um, what you talk about in terms of cause and effect, effect and cause, like that, that interesting relationship. Um, and that, that was really one of my main takeaways. And, and was that your intent for the first chapter? You know, what are you really trying to do as you, as you launch us on this, uh, on this journey? Well, in a sense, the whole book is about that. Um, the, the, what I said in the first chapter was really an opening gambit to um, hook people's interest if they were, you know, of a mind to uh, to go into that. Um, there are some other reasons that I could explain better with material from the subsequent chapters. But, I mean, the basic um, principle, I guess, is that if if we live in a deterministic universe where um, uh, cause and effect are linear and um, uh, invariable, they are, the, the variation only appears because there's some cause behind it, then there's no room for creativity. Uh, and therefore, um, we're we're um, we're in a in a worldview of of just simply um, momentum and always, in a sense, driving in the rearview mirror. Uh, and uh, this was so incongruent with my work on futures, and in in imagining new futures and 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 studying some of the factors in entrepreneurialism uh, and also creative arts and so on. I'm, I'm a bit of a closet, or used to be a bit of a closet jazz musician. Uh, and so you know, where, where's the room for improvisation in, in that world? Um, and philosophically, I was very interested from my science studies in multidimensionality. And something I haven't mentioned is I was for a, a year... Um, a postgraduate student of David Bohm, and um, at the early days when he just published um, Implicate Order and had some really interesting conversations with him. I didn't go on to do a PhD with him because I couldn't hack the maths, but um, we got on fine on the philosophy and the concepts. Um, and and so the, the idea that the 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 rigid space-time continuum that has become the kind of um, official scientific religion is is just not fit for purpose. It it fails to correspond to the richness of the real universe. And but on the other hand, if we have that view, we put blinkers on. Um, so unless we can change our worldview to open up to the possibility of um, different kinds of causality or different kinds of dimensionality, then um, we've, we've sort of um, not simply shot ourselves in the foot, we've cut our legs off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, what you've been describing in the last, you know, couple of minutes really kind of leads me to the next question. And, and you've touched on this a little bit already. 
you know, with regard to creativity and, and, you know, sparks of innovation coming from other, you know, even your own experience of, of, of the, of the 10 pictures up on your whiteboard. Um, but just in terms of, um, you know, rehabilitating the observer, that's the title of the next chapter. And I, I think it was um, interesting because, you know, the role of observer as more than observer is, is not new to systems thinking, but you bring up some new angles for this discussion. And it just, it, again, around, you know, consciousness or, you know, uh, creativity, ethics. I'm just, I'd, I'd love you to just spend a couple of minutes just talking about that. Because, again, I think that's a really important distinction from other areas, uh, you know, of, of systems thinking that, that we've been exposed to so far. Yes, well, in a sense, the the observer, uh, 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 as, as um, Randolph Glanville, former president of the American Society of Cybernetics put it, you know, the, the, in second order cybernetics, the, the observer is acknowledged. But I, because I'd been working quite a bit in decision making, it was clear that the observer, um, it, that, that, that accommodating the observer, which is a big step for conventional, particularly scientific thinking, uh, because we've we've sort of in the scientific community we've had a collusion that will agree that the observer doesn't exist. Um, uh, that that the, the, the observer is simply the gateway into the human being, you know, and, and the human being is 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 um, a richer, uh, a more complex creature, um, so that. Um, uh, if we're um, making a decision, uh, a, a, a difficult decision, um, we are part of the decision system. And uh, if we externalize the system, and so it's about economics or um, hurdle rates or, or return on investment or whatever, we're actually, we've cut ourselves off from the real v value. Um, so for me, the, 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 it was natural to look at the idea of how does consciousness play in, um, once you've accepted some kind of second order approach, how, uh, a reflexive approach, how does consciousness play into that and how does creativity play into that? Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love that. And I think that it kind of goes back to something that you um, say in, uh, I think it was the first chapter, just in terms of like our separation um, from the environment, uh, you know, in this in this era that um, known as the Anthropocene, you know, just that dangerous separation. And, um, you know, these we need, we need these modes of knowing we need these, these, um, you know, ethics and, and sense of responsibility and connection. Um, it, it deeply um, in order to, to solve some of these big problems that uh, that we're addressing and that are going to, you know, protect, you know, continue to plague us. Um, you know, in the next couple of chapters, this is where in, in my mind it gets really meaty. And, uh, you know, I, not that the stuff so far hasn't been really cool, but but your thoughts on on the future and, and what you get the um, reader thinking about with regard to the future and encouraging um, what you refer to to as an awareness of the future in the present moment is very, very interesting. So I'd love you to just spend a bit of time um, talking about 
that um, talking about the horizons of decisions that 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 you um, have done a lot of work on. Um, I I love this notion of of feed forward. Um, it it really uh, just I you know really connected with that, that with that concept. Um, and uh, and then you also introduce a new concept, uh, and I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm, I'll let you introduce it and 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 talk about it. But again, it was something I think that's really useful, and how you how you present it is uh, is is quite useful as well. So um, why don't you talk about that? Your orientation um, around uh, you know future uh, orientation and the tools that you're providing in chapters three and chapters four. Okay, well, um, let's see where, where to start. Uh, what, what I'm going to do... Sorry, um, that was a lot. <laughs> uh, ...is um, Yeah, I'm just looking at my book because I've been working on so many things. That, um, I have to re- remind myself of uh, the way... I think the main thing before... Uh, for the listeners is, is your, you know, you, um, coined this, this term anticipatory present moment yeah, and uh, APM for short. And, uh, I, I think that's kind of the crux of what I want to get at. at yeah. At well, I, I think that the, the chapter headings are not bad actually, because I think the, the way, the way in is reperceiving the future and combining that with, the notion that anticipatory systems are different. Now, you need a bit of background here. Um, One person who I only met a couple of times, but I worked with his colleagues, was Pierre Wack, who was really one of the um, geniuses behind the the birth of scenario planning, Uh, worked in, in, in Shell. And um, in summing up his, his work uh, in his retirement um, talk, uh, he, he, he said that unless an executive or manager or group went through a shocking reperception of something, then they hadn't really done scenario planning. And he coined, there's a, there's a, um, so he coined this term reperceiving. Um, I took it further because of my interest in dimensionality that actually, um, what do we mean by the future? It sounds very philosophical, but it's also very practical. That if 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 um, if the future is simply an extrapolation of the past. Um, if the, the, the next moment is simply the tock that follows the tick and life is simply tick tock, tick tock, um, Mm -hmm. then, um, we're in that very constrained view of what's going on. Uh, we're unlikely to actually recognize what is really going on better sufficiently. And you can see all kinds of um, governance and corporate and personal and, and enterprise failures because of that, uh, that constraint. So 
I got very interested in the phenomenology of time perception. And um, so I began to take Pierre's idea of, well, how about moving the meaning on, not just re-perceiving the future as in what's going to happen next, but re-perceiving the future as what do we mean by the future? And that led to the um, idea that um, uh, we should take more seriously what are normally treated as fringe phenomena like retrocausality and um, recognition of um, through uh, altered states of consciousness, um, not as some kind of uh, weird thing that you get by going to the Amazon jungle, but as actual things that happen in everyday life, but infrequently, and when they do, we don't notice them. Um, then uh, I came across um, the work of... Um, Professor Roberto Poli at um, the University of Trento in Italy, and he was a, a, a guy called uh, Riel Miller, who was uh, head of futures for OECD at the time, uh, got very interested in rehabilitating Robert Rosen's work on anticipatory systems. It had got rather completely marginalized in the systems world. So what I did was look at Robert Rosen's work, and he was the guy who invented this term feed forward. And it's a, it's a very simple convention, but it's like this, that if, if you look at feedback, its very nature is information from the past. Uh, if you have a, a, a governor um, or, or a thermostat, um, it's picking up a measurement at a given moment of time and is transmitting it to the the system in a way that affects its future behavior. So you, you get the burnt child dreads the fire, you know, because there's been a, a past event of getting burnt, behavior changes. But Rosen pointed out that if you studied life itself carefully, that life seems to have an uncanny knack of anticipating of futures that do not derive in that linear way from the past. And so he, it's as if, um, the way he put it is as if the, the, the organism or, or even the brain has a way of simulating the environment it's in and running it at a faster speed than the actual environment so it, it can be ahead of the game. Um, you know, why do deciduous trees start growing their buds while the old leaves are falling off? How do they know spring is coming? Um, that's a very, it's not, it's not as simple as that, but that's a useful kind of right. metaphor. So Rosen has this uh, model of a, an anticipatory system, but what Rosen didn't have was second-order cybernetics. So in, in the book uh, and in my PhD thesis, I said, well, okay, what happens if you 
as it were, upgrade Rosen's model to a second order version. And the, the acknowledgement of the observer is that human beings have the possibility of being conscious anticipatory systems. Now, in order for that to be possible, from the studies of phenomenology of time perception, and various other things that I got from John Bennett and other reading on various kinds of multidimensionality and cosmology and so on, it seemed to me that, that, um, that there are dimensions of reality, like, say, uh, a, di a dimension that, that holds pattern, uh, which is not in time, in the conventional sense, but can be called into time. And that also is related to Bohm's implicate order. Um, and so it seemed to me that, that, that what an anticipatory system did was to pick up on signals from the future, which it then had to process into taking action. And that's where Poli points out that foresight and future studies are not anticipatory because they stop at forecasting, say, if you take the weather as a metaphor, whereas anticipatory systems look at the forecast and say, I'm going to take an umbrella, that, as he puts it, you use the future. Right. So an anticipatory system uses the future, but which future does it use? Well, the conventional interpretation of that still gets stuck in determinism by saying that, well, the, the, the anticipatory component has a model of the environment, runs it faster, but that model is still based on what we know from the past. I've stuck my neck out and said, well, how about there really is a real other future, some patterning, and it, it can be accessed, and it is giving us signals about a future which is not derivable from the past. Right. But that then leads to a cognitive clash, an anomaly. And we know from sort of looking at entrepreneurship that, 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 that the, for example, that if you've got a mad idea, um, most people call it mad because it simply doesn't fit with current assumptions. But if the entrepreneur is able to pull it off, then you arrive at the I told you so, uh, it was. It turned out to be real, or it became real. It was made to be real, and so right. that how far that can be done depends on the span of attention and consciousness, which gets us into the idea of not the instant now, but what um, Poli and others call the thick present moment. And so, the anticipatory present moment is a sort of umbrella term that weaves all that together uh, and a few other things as well it's a real uh, transdisciplinary tapestry <laughs> the APA. yeah yeah it, you know it, it's 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 definitely i mean I, I love the richness that you bring to this conversation i think that listeners just need to obviously we just read the book because you know there's so much that you cover um and that we don't have time to here just even in terms of some of the things that you talk about with regard to decision integrity 
And, you know, I've been in tech my whole life. So, you know, this, the conversation around algorithms um, and, and our dependency on algorithms. Now, there's an argument to be made that there's a predictive element to, you know, certain, you know, models that we can, that we can build. Um, but the, the, the over-dependency pr perhaps on those and, 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 and maybe how we need to balance that with sort of, again, kind of other ways of knowing is, is a point that, that I definitely took um, from, uh, from the book. We're, we're, we're starting to need to kind of wrap up yeah, we're, um, conversation. We're, we're, yeah, so I, I hate to interrupt this incredible yeah. conversation. It's been so rich for me just to be able to, to, to listen as well. And so many things coming up. And obviously, we're just barely scratching the surface of this book that I can't wait to get uh, my hands on. Um, you mentioned, uh, Anthony, that the, this uh, disjuncture between uh, research the way it's actually done and the research the way it's it's written up. Um, and I just want to uh, draw our listeners' attention to the fact that our, our the very last episode of this podcast we did around the book Design Cybernetics very explicitly deals with that exact issue that you're raising. So there there is uh, some writing up uh, about this that I want to uh, attract listeners to. Um, and, uh, and, and also, uh, I'm just hearing echoes of so many of the past episodes talking about Rosen, anticipatory systems, uh, feed forward. Um, I'm thinking about Kenneth Sayre and his great book, um, Cybernetics and the Philosophy of Mind, talking about what he called anticipatory feedback. So I'm hearing so many echoes of so many of the great things here. So obviously, um, incredibly, incredibly uh, rich book and uh, encourage readers to, uh, to pick it up. I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this particular uh, episode. I just want to thank you, Anthony, so much for being on here and Kevin for jumping into the role as uh, as our special guest interviewer. And I'm hoping Kevin's got the bug now and will maybe join us uh, as a regular contributor, putting him on the spot right here in front of all of our listeners, uh, because obviously, Kevin, you've got a gift for, for interviewing and, and a passion and, a, and an awareness of this subject matter that really goes a long way. So massive thanks to you both. Like thank you, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity. Chip in, Tom, and say thank you for hosting this kind of uh, process, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, very much needed and, and pretty unique. And, and to Kevin for um, really getting into this stuff um, to put me on the spot, which is great. Yeah. This is all about conversation, right, and the cybernetic notion of what a conversation can, can really be. And it's been a pleasure for me to uh to just be an observer uh in uh well of course as an observer i'm always participating right yeah um, part of it. yeah more <laughs> we just keep peeling the onion thanks again very much to you both and thanks to all of our listeners uh you've been listening to a conversation with uh, anthony hodgson here on new books and systems and cybernetics a podcast channel of the new books network